You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us for today's live question and answer program. What we do here on Tuesday afternoons on our YouTube channel, excuse me, Thursday afternoons on our YouTube channel, is at 12 noon Pacific time. That's West Coast time in the United States. I spend an hour or so answering questions that come in on the live chat. And then, of course, we record this and make it available on our YouTube channel. So what we're doing here today is we do our normal thing of beginning with a lead question that comes in through a YouTube comment, uh, email, social media. This particular question came in today through social media. And the question is simply this, uh, was the American Revolution justified? Again, was the American Revolution justified? And that question comes to us uh, from Dawson, who I believe submitted the question through Facebook. And let me read to you here Dawson's question. It's simply this. Was the American Revolution justified? It seems Romans 13 clearly doesn't support the founding fathers' motives, though some were religious. The Declaration of Independence says... But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing uh, invariably the same object, invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Dawson's question is this, is this biblical, is civil disobedience by an armed revolution ever justified. Now, I want you to know Dawson also asked a second question that I'll get to after answering this first question, but I really think it's a good question. Was the American Revolution in colonial days, you know, we're talking about the Declaration of Independence, 1776, the things that took place in the decades before that, the actual fighting of the war, the establishment of the new country, the Constitution in 1790, 1791, and and I, I think it's a great question. And I think we should begin by taking a look at the Bible passage that Dawson referred to in his question. Uh, That's Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Actually, it goes on beyond verses 1 and 2, really, but we'll just take a look here at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Here are our verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, there's no denying it, and we have no desire to deny it. This is a very strong call to submit to governing authorities, the governments that are over us. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, uh, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God has a God-given role, an appointed role, for governmental authorities, and therefore they're to be obeyed, they're to be uh, honored. Now, 
this is what I think is important to say. This is a strong call to submission and we never want to define submission as um, going along with something when we agree with it. There really is something to be said for the principle that submission is not even really tested until there is disagreement among peoples. When there is disagreement, that's when, if I'm supposed to submit to you and you and I agree on something, it's nothing for me to submit to you. But if I'm supposed to submit to you and we disagree, then actually it's a challenge for me to submit. So we never want to act as if submission is only in effect when there's agreement anyway. That's not submission at all. However, we don't want to make the uh, another error in regard to submission by thinking that this is an absolute call to submission. Uh, I'll express it to you this way. The Bible gives many human authorities, we could consider them horizontal, you know, on the level of other human beings, many spheres where there is to be an order of authority and submission. We read this one right here in Romans chapter 13. Uh, the government should expect submission from its citizens, from those it rules over, according to Romans chapter 13. Uh, we have an order of authority and submission in the home, the Bible says. There's an order of authority and submission in the church, God says. There's an order of authority and submission in the workplace, according to God. Now, the, these orders of authority and submission are real. They require a lot of a person, but we should never fall into the error of thinking that they are absolute. And this is what I mean. One place we could go to think of this is the statement of Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where it says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. In other words, there was an established governmental authority that Peter and the other disciples might normally be compelled to respect and obey to. But because they told them to disobey God, they said, we're not under that. We're going to obey God rather than men. So we do agree that there are many challenging areas of submission that the Bible requires, requires us of in respect to government, in the home, uh, at the workplace, uh, in the church family, in the church body. But it's never absolute. God never expects us to submit absolutely to another human being. We obey God first when the command of God contradicts the uh, request or the law or the command of man. Now, to the American Revolution in colonial days. Many colonists in America in those days felt that the revolution was justified, and many of them even believed that it was a duty before God. Now, not all did by any means. There were many colonists who remained loyal to England and to England's king, and they thought it was wrong to rebel, and some of those who thought it was wrong to rebel against the king and the government of England were motivated by their faith, and they were motivated by passages such as Romans chapter 13 that we just read a few moments ago. So it was a divided thing in the American colonies. 
Uh, many colonists, probably a majority, believed that it was right to break away from England, right to rebel, even with violence. Others disagreed. And both of them appealed to Christian principles. Now, the question is, why did so many feel that the American Revolution was justified, even though passages like Romans chapter 13 tell us to submit to the government? So I, I believe that there were at least three ideas. I'm not trying to say this encompasses everything, but I see at least three ideas that contributed to their feeling that revolution was justified. Number one, they honestly believed that the American Revolution was a defensive war, that the King of England and his government were taking away things that they already had. And let me say, the American colonists had reason to believe that because they enjoyed a substantial amount of religious, political, and economic freedom before uh, 1750 in the earlier part of the 18th century. And of course, in the 17th century, as things developed in the 18th century, 1750, 60 into the seventies, more and more of their freedoms that they once enjoyed were being taken away. Now, now somebody could make the argument, look, you were a colony. The, the empire can do with you as they please. Now, and you could say in some sense, that's true, but it is a huge difference when somebody has a right and then that right is taken away from them. I'm just saying that in the earlier stages of the American colonies, they had more political, religious, and economic freedom than happened later uh, in the colonial period, in the period that gave birth to the revolution. They believed, and I believe they had reason to believe that the American revolution was a defensive war, number one. Number two, they had in the English-speaking world and beyond, but of course, especially in the English-speaking world, since the middle of the previous century, the idea that the law came before the king. Now, you, you may or may not know that in Europe at that time, that there was a very strong concept of what many people called the divine right of kings. <laughs> Basically, idea was this, that the kings or queens of that time said, God made me king. I have absolute power. You must do whatever I tell you to do. That's the end of the story. I'm God's king, the divine right of kings. Now, against the idea of the divine right of kings, there were men like the Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford, who wrote a well-known book in the middle of the 17th century. And that book was titled Lex Rex. Now, in Latin, that means law king. And the idea was that the law came before the king. It was law king, lex rex. It wasn't rex lex. It wasn't king law. The law comes before the king. And it was against the idea of the divine right of kings. A man like Samuel Rutherford would, wouldn't say that kings had no rights. No, he knew his Bible well enough to know that wasn't the case. But divine right and all rights, no, they did not have them. So that was the second idea. The idea that even kings were under the law, and if kings transgressed the law, they could be held account to it. So first, the idea that the American Revolution was a defensive war. Secondly, 
uh, tearing down the idea of the divine right of kings and the idea that even kings are under the law. And then the third idea is the idea of the just war. Now, the idea of the just war is something that had existed in Christianity for centuries. Uh, the early theologian Augustine was someone who spelled out in some level of detail the ideas of the just war. But to summarize, it's the idea that there are times when war is biblically justified and it's even the right thing, the duty, the responsibility for nations and peoples to do. Now, based on those three principles and more, I, I'm obviously minimizing for the sake of our time here together. Based on those three principles and more, the idea was simply this. They reasoned like this. They reasoned, okay, well, first of all, uh, the king had showed himself to be a tyrant. That is, the king had showed himself to be above any law. Therefore, to submit to the king was to dishonor God. It was to elevate the king too highly and it was to put the principle of law too low. They also believe this, and this is evident in the Declaration of Independence and other documents. They believe that other means of appeal were exhausted. They believed, and this is important according to the just war idea, they believed that there was a reasonable chance of success for their revolution. And then finally, they believed that their use of war would not produce a worse situation. Those last two things are important aspects of the just war theory. They, they, they're not every aspect, but two important aspects of the just war theory is, number one, you have to have a reasonable chance of success in order to embark on a just war. And secondly, your use of war cannot produce a worse situation than existed before. So those points worked out elements of the just war theory through their present situation. Now, again, I want to take place that not everybody agreed. There were American colonists who did not believe that the King of England, King George, had showed himself to be a tyrant above the law. They did not believe that to submit to the king was to dishonor God, but there were enough who genuinely did that they believed that they were justified in rebelling against the king in their revolution because they were honoring God and his law above a tyrant. That was their thinking. Now, when we think back to the American Revolution, it shows us that Christians can look at the political situation of their day and come to different conclusions. Those Christians who favored revolution did so for some of the reasons I stated, and, and I would say I would agree with them. But there were other Christians who remained loyal to the English crown, and they said this, your reasons aren't compelling to me. I think God still wants us to submit to the government. Now, again, if I wanted to speak in a theoretical sense, I could make a case for either position. But, but because of that, I think that individual Christians in the days of the American Revolution should have followed their conscience and they should have been charitable towards other believers who did not agree. Listen, uh, the believer in the days of the American Revolution 
who believed that it was honorable before God, it was a just war to have the revolution, um, I would have been in, in agreement with them. And I would say, but I don't think that you could have excommunicated a Christian who said, listen, I understand your position, but I disagree. And I think we should remain loyal to the crown. I, I do think that this idea that Christians can look at the same political situation and read it differently, I think we need to apply that to our present day and age. Now, I do think that it's important that these things be sorted out, that they be talked out, that it's okay to debate. It's it's not just okay, it's good to debate the position back and forth. But what is important is to come back to the principle that we need to have our principles rooted in good biblical understanding. And I do think that there would be a good and an adequate biblical understanding to support the American Revolution, particularly in the in the areas, and, and this is, I think, what would make the American Revolution different than many or most revolutions, maybe even virtually all revolutions, is, number one, the reasonable chance of success, and then number two, they did not institute something that was worse than went before. And by the way, that's what we see in so many of the revolutions that have happened throughout history. Yes, a group overthrows an existing government, and what do they institute? Something worse than the previous government. Um, the czars of Russia were apparently not very good rulers. I mean, look, I, I don't want to debate the point, but many people would say that they weren't very good rulers. But I don't think there's much argument at all that the communist government that overthrew the czars of Russia was worse. Uh, and you could give that same idea throughout many, many revolutions that have happened in the last several hundred years. So, Dawson, that's my answer to the first question. I do believe that the American Revolution was justified for those reasons that I gave. I just want to deal quickly with your second question. You, you ask, and what are the exact laws from God that supersede any law of man? Is the Second Amendment a God-given right? Okay, I, I don't know exactly which are the exact laws from God that supersede any law of man. I mean, all the laws of God do, correctly understood, put in the right context, they do. But I mean, again, I, I would just go to context for that. But your question, is the Second Amendment a God-given right? Now, for those of our viewers who do not live in America, you may or may not know what the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution reads as. This is the Second Amendment. It says, a well-regulated militia, military force, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's what the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution says. So it simply preserves the right of Americans to, uh, as it says, keep and bear arms, weapons. In those days, it was understood to be firearms, you know, what we would call guns. Uh, obviously, that's interpreted the same way today. We wouldn't regard it as being an absolute right. Uh, the, the right to keep and bear arms does not give a private citizen the right to own a fully automatic weapon or a rocket launcher. But it certainly does, and the understanding of most constitutional scholars and all the rest. 
it does give them the right to bear firearms, a rifle, a pistol, whatever it would be. Now, Dawson's question is, is this a God-given right? It's clearly a right under the United States Constitution, but is this a God-given right? And I would say this, the Bible makes it clear that God gives individuals the right to self-defense. I'm not going to go to the passages. I'll just quote them and you can turn to them if you please. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, gives the right to use force in self-defense, even in defending one's property. Now, under the right circumstances. (laughs) Exodus chapter 22 and other Old Testament passages, they do not give an unlimited right of self-defense, but under the right circumstances, there is a definite right to self-defense in the Bible. Now, put that together with this. Luke chapter 22, verse 38 tells us that the disciples apparently traveled with two swords. And I could point you to passages in Matthew, Luke, and John also tell us that the disciples apparently had weapons with them, a sword or swords. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus told his disciples that there would be a time when it was appropriate for his followers to buy a sword. So knowing those two things, first of all, the Bible gives a definite right to self-defense. That is to defend yourself, your family, your property. And we know that Jesus and his disciples carried weapons. Now, I wouldn't say specifically Jesus himself carried a weapon. We're never given that picture. But the group of the disciples and Jesus, they had weapons with them. I think we can reason like this. Number one, self-defense is a biblical idea God gives the right to self-defense, not that that right can't be exceeded or abused. It certainly can, but, but the right is there. Secondly, Jesus and his disciples defended themselves with the appropriate weapons of their day, namely swords. Therefore, I would say that God gives us the right to defend ourselves, our families, and our property with the appropriate weapons of our day. Now, as with any right, it's between you and the Lord how much of that right you practice. I just think it's worth the prayerful consideration of every person, what would God have me to do? What measures would he have me to take? What wisdom would he have me appropriate to defend myself, my family, and my property? And that answer may differ from person to person according to their temperament, according to where they live, according to their skills, according to their age, according to their training, all these different things. Now, specifically, Dawson, I would not say the Second Amendment is a God-given right. I would say this. The Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is consistent with our God-given rights, keeping in mind the fact that, again, uh, God does clearly give a definite right of self-defense in the scriptures, and uh, the disciples, Jesus together with them, were not anti-weapon, anti-the weapons of their day. So anyway, Dawson, I hope that that helps you in answering that question. Maybe it'll be of interest or assistance to somebody else. Uh, Let me... uh 
take a look at the side chat here and we'll spend the rest of our time up until the top of the hour uh, just taking a look at whatever questions might come in here. So let's take a look. Uh, Jose asks, first of all, Denise, I'm glad you could join us. Secondly, Jose asks, will the Israelites that came out of Egypt and died in the desert be saved? Jude verse 1, uh, Jude chapter 1 verse 5 says, the Lord destroyed those who did not believe and um, Exodus chapter 14 verse 31 says that the Israelites believed the Lord. Thanks. Okay, Jose. First of all, I, I wouldn't read too much in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, because even though I don't know that specific verse, obviously we could look it up, but, but I do know the timeline of Exodus. And by Exodus chapter 14, they have not even come to Mount Sinai and entered into their national covenant with God yet. So uh, they haven't even been given the opportunity to go into the promised land. That happened about a year after they came to Mount Sinai. So Exodus chapter 14, I'm sure it's true that they believed in God. The, the scriptures would say so. And I'm just going to trust your quotation there as being correct. But, but it was believing God for his deliverance in their moment, not necessarily for eternal salvation. Here's the point. We have no promise in the scriptures that every individual Israelite that was freed from Egypt made it to heaven. Not, not at all. There was a difference between what God promised to them as his covenant people, as a nation, a specific people that God had called them to be and to fulfill their purpose in his unfolding plan of the ages. There's a difference between that and the individual Israelite being saved by their own personal decision of trusting in God and what God promised to provide through a Messiah to come. That's how they would be saved. We, we need to be very careful and understand that no one is saved and no one is damned by the group they belong to. In other words, your membership in a specific church isn't going to get you to heaven. Your lack of membership in another kind of church isn't going to send you to hell. We aren't saved or damned because of the group we belong to or don't belong to. We are saved or damned based on what we do with Jesus Christ, God's Messiah and Savior, the Savior of the world. So, as far as it comes to individual eternal salvation, their belief in God uh, to rescue them from Egypt and provide for them in the wilderness did not necessarily mean that they believed in God for salvation. So, uh, Jose, I, I hope you understand what I'm getting at with this question. Um, maybe some of those who died in the wilderness were saved, but they did not enter into the promised land. I'll tell you what, um, you could say that Moses died in the wilderness. Now, I know he was a special case. Uh, he died on Mount Pisgah, but he definitely died outside the promised land. Moses was among those who died in the wilderness in a technical sense. And let me tell you something, I know absolute positively you're going to see Moses in heaven. Why? Because 
he had an individual relationship of trust and reliance upon God, especially in what God had promised to provide from the Messiah to come. So, Jose, I hope that helps you there. Lupe says, Buenas tardes. Hello, Lupe, and buenas tardes to you as well. I don't get tired of reminding our Spanish-speaking viewers. Now, uh, obviously, I'm speaking English. I can't speak Spanish. Uh, and we don't translate these YouTube videos, the question answers, into Spanish. But I do want to say this, that uh, we do have a commentary on the entire Bible that is translated into Spanish. If you speak Spanish or read Spanish, take advantage of it. And please recommend it to your Spanish-speaking friends and pastors and associates. And we have just launched a greater social media presence in Spanish. Uh, look it up. You can find our social media presence on uh, Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, we are promoting more and more of a social media presence in Spanish language because we want to let Spanish-speaking believers and seekers know that we have these free Bible resources. And anything you can do to help us out with that is a huge, huge gift unto us. So thank you. Okay, Gracia says, Hey, Pastor, hope you're well. Can you help me to understand 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 better, more specifically, to glorify God in the day of visitation? that particular passage. So let's take a look at that. You're talking about, again, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me go over to that passage. Again, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where the text read this. Um, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, again, I think that maybe perhaps it's possible to make too much out of that phrase, to glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, I don't think it's trying to imply that every pagan that sees the life of a believer will, in fact, glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, in other words, that they will be saved. Uh, but again, um, maybe he's saying that they will become saved and give glory to God. Your example... Yeah, how about this? I, I, I like this understanding. As I talk about it, it's come a little bit clearer to my mind. Your godly example can display to others God's greatness so that these people, these Gentiles, will be led to Jesus Christ and that they, along with you, will glorify God on the day of visitation. He's talking about the witness of the believer being a testimony and a hook, so to speak, to bring somebody to Christ and to attract them to the good news that is in Jesus Christ. That's really the best idea. I think glorifying the God in the day of visitation, glorifying God in the day of visitation there speaks of their coming to Christ. 
and the day of visitation being the second coming of Jesus, that's what I would regard that as, um, being a day that they would glorify God and not be filled in terror because of the wrath of God. That's the best way I would answer that. Levy asks a question here. David, why are the modern versions of the Bible copyrighted unlike the King James Bible, which is public domain? Levy, I think I can give just a quick answer to that. Why are modern versions of the Bible copyrighted? They are copyrighted because it is a very expensive proposition to uh, translate and publish a modern Bible version. And the people who put a lot of money into that, they want to get a return on their investment. Uh, maybe they make their money back. Maybe they want to make a profit. I, I can't speak to those particular motives. But the copyright is simply to protect their monetary interest. The King James Version was written at a time when there were no copyrights. It is in that category of what we'd call public domain work where it can't be copyrighted. Anybody can publish an edition of the King James Bible. There's no restriction on it whatsoever. However, other Bibles, more modern translations do have restrictions. Uh, some of them are more open, some of them are more closed, but the tendency is virtually all modern Bible translations that I know of have those restrictions. And again, it's just because they want to protect the investment that they made in translating and publishing those Bibles. Uh, happy to say that we offer our Bible resources at Enduring Word absolutely free on the internet. Uh, we don't give people the permission to freely distribute them, uh, but they can be used, certainly, and used for personal use and such like that. Uh, the, the material that we have, the Bible commentary in both English and Spanish is copyrighted and we want to protect those works, of course, uh, but we're happy to give them away for free. Okay, let's continue on. Brittany asks a question. Uh, Hi, Pastor. I would like to know if we are required to keep the Sabbath. I have family that hold to some Seventh-day Adventist beliefs and want to know if we have to keep the Sabbath and how do we observe it? Uh, Brittany, your question is good. It's a little bit complicated. I could give sort of a classic theologian answer to your question. Do we, are we required to keep the Sabbath? I would say no and yes. <laughs> okay, here, here's the no part of it. We are not under obligation to keep the aspects of the ceremonial law that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christians aren't required to perform sacrifices. The feast days are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're no longer required to keep those feast days. The temple ceremonies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're no longer required to keep those. The Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes this plain. So because the Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it is not a binding law. And the idea for Christians is like this. It isn't, well, we have rest in Jesus. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. <laughs> The idea is more like this. We have rest in Jesus. Every day is a Sabbath for us as believers. Do you get the difference between the two? 
So, no, Christians are not under obligation to keep the Sabbath in that respect. It is a part of the law, the ceremonial law, we would say, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the no part of the answer. Here's the yes part of the answer. There are aspects of the Sabbath that are just hardwired into us for our good. So even though we are not required to keep the uh, seventh day, Saturday, as the Sabbath, it is good for us to take a day off one in seven. It's healthy. It's good. That, That is consistent with how God has created us. I say that as somebody who tends to overwork and as somebody who has a difficulty keeping and observing the Sabbath, so to speak, throughout my uh, life, still to this day. But but again, I I hope you can catch the distinction there. Um, We don't keep the Sabbath uh, to obey God and to be right before him. That's fulfilled in Jesus. But it's wise to keep the Sabbath because that's how God's constructed us to work well with one day of rest in seven. So I, I hope that answers that for you there. Um, people, now, uh, the, there's one other thing that I'd like to say that I think is very important about this. While we are not required to keep the Sabbath because there's an aspect of God's ceremonial law that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we are, as believers, free to keep the Sabbath if we would like to. If a Christian wants to keep the Sabbath, they are certainly welcome to in Jesus Christ and and to do it in that. So if a Christian's conscience is stirred and they think, I think I want to keep the Sabbath, God bless you. Go ahead and keep it. Do it unto the glory of God. Just do not expect that to be a binding law upon the conscience of other Christians. They are free to observe the Sabbath or to not observe it, as Paul says in Colossians, let no one judge you concerning the keeping of a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, we don't have to have anybody judge us regarding the keeping or the not keeping of the Sabbath in that regard. So we're free in Jesus. If someone wants to keep it, God bless them. They're free to keep it. If they want to keep it in a different way or that's different than tradition, they're free to do that as well. Okay, I hope that helps you there, Brittany. Let me continue on to a witness says, um, some believe that it is sinful to reveal one's thigh in public. They cite Isaiah chapter 47 verses two and three, which says, your nakedness shall be uncovered. They believe that verse two explains it's because they uncovered the thigh. So the question is, can nakedness simply refer to the, uh, the maid being raped. I also know that this is a picture of Babylon's judgment. Okay, witness, let me just explain it to you this way. Uh, the biblical command regarding such things really should be understood in the context of modesty. You, you can just look up the New Testament passages, the Old Testament passages for that matter that speak of the idea of modesty. Now, here's the thing. We have to admit, and just be very honest about this, that the standards of modesty can differ somewhat from culture to culture. Clearly, there are some displays of the human body 
that would be universally immodest and we should just avoid. Again, I, I, I don't want to get into what those specific displays, but I think it, it's fairly obvious that there are certain displays of the human body that could and should be universally understood as immodest. However, there are some cultures where the um, display of the leg, let's say halfway above the knee or whatever, would be viewed as being immodest in either a male or a female. Or there's other ones where it might be viewed as being modest. And so we, we don't say that this is an issue completely given over to cultural subjectivity, yet we can't deny that there are some aspects of it that are culturally subjective. Something that may be perfectly modest in one culture may not be regarded as modest in another culture. And I think that in whatever culture you're in, you have to observe those particular things. You, you're not free to flaunt a standard of modesty just because you come from a different culture. Well, and the same is true the, the other way around. So um, generally in the culture I live in, it's not immodest for someone to wear shorts. Now, of course, you could conceive that there's some, you know, style of shorts or something somebody could wear that could break this. But but I, that's not a violation of modesty. What this is speaking of is how modesty was understood in biblical culture and, and don't ever miss the idea that in the Bible, the phrase to uncover nakedness is a euphemism, a soft way of speaking for sexual relations. You find this especially in the book of Leviticus. Now, I'm not saying that it's only having to do with sexual relations, but I would say that it is a display of nudity leading to sexual immorality. So it kind of has both ideas in mind. So just as you would state the question for me, I do not believe that the passage in Isaiah is a universal uh, condemnation of somebody wearing a modest swimsuit or shorts, male or female. Uh, I, I just don't see that to be the case. Um, but I, I will allow that there are different standards of modesty and that needs to be kept in mind as well. So again, I hope I haven't confused you more with that answer, but I'm going to get on to the next um question here. Denise asks a question. I hope this doesn't sound too stupid, but why is there or supposed to be a separation between church and state? Of course, I'm not talking about the church, the bride of Christ. Okay, Denise, that's not a stupid question at all. We talk a lot about it in America, that there should be a separation between church and state, at least in some regard. Of course, there's different ideas on what that means, but the basic idea that there should be some kind of separation between church and state, I think, is agreed on by almost all Americans. It's, it's, why? Is that a Bible idea? Does the Bible tell us that there should be no separation between church and state? And, and I would say this, that the Bible tells us that there should be a separation between church and state. In theology, people sometimes call this the two kingdoms idea. In other words, uh, there's the kingdom of God together with the church, and then there's the kingdom of man that is typified or, or finds its governmental role with the government, uh, the state, 
king, congress, president, prime minister, whatever it may be. So here's the simple idea that God has established both kingdoms and one is not to rule over the other. That's the idea in a nutshell. It's more complicated than that, but I'm trying to state it very briefly behind the idea of the two kingdoms. Now, I don't believe that Jesus gave us an indication that his disciples should be establishing a state church. Matter of fact, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. It certainly has an impact on this world, but it is not a earthly kingdom in the sense that the Roman Empire was an earthly kingdom. It's not the same thing. So I would say that the Bible does teach that um, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, both of them have a place in God's plan. We're, we're not trying to say that God has no concern with the kingdoms of man. No, not at all. God has a great concern with that. And, and there is cross concern between the two, but that they are different realms that need to be respected. Okay, but... I'll give you even more pragmatic, practical answer. I believe that the history of the church shows us that when the church has had political power, especially when it's had great political power, it has not held it very well. When you take a look at the story of the church having great political power uh, in the Roman Empire after Constantine, the church having great political power in the medieval church, the state having great political power in uh, churches since the Reformation with the different state churches established in different nations. I, I don't think it's used it for good. I think one of the blessings God gave to the United States of America is that we've never had a state church on a federal level. I know that early in the colonies, there were state churches in a few of the colonies and so, but never on a federal or national level has there been a state church. And that has been a blessing for the United States of America. It has been something that um, has contributed to the vitality and the energy of Christianity in our country. Um, as compared to other nations that have had state churches. So um, I believe that it is not only established by biblical principle, but by history. Now, when I say that Christians have not held political power very well, this is what I mean. I mean that Christians in the form of ruling nations or ruling political parties it, it really hasn't turned out well. I, I can give you a few notable examples of, of uh, to the contrary. What I do think is good and appropriate and there needs to be more of is Christian individuals of courage and conscience seeking to um, uh, enter into politics and do what God would have them do in politics. I'm all for Christian political involvement, I'm not for Christian political parties. I'm not for 
Christian political institutions. On an individual level, Christian political participation is good and necessary, and I pray God would give us more of it, not less. But on an institutional level, I don't see that it's been helpful. I don't see that it's been good for the church to hold institutional political power. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, Denise, but I hope it's helpful, at least in some way. Uh, Going on here, West asks a question. Um, What is the clear definition of faith? Well, you know, West, you can go back to Hebrews chapter 11, where it says faith is the evidence of things hoped for, um, the, the, the proof of things not seen. Uh, that's okay, of course, definition of faith. That's, that's, that's a, I think it's incomplete, but what it says about faith is certainly true. I like the way that a commentator on the Greek text of the Bible named Kenneth Wiest used to answer that question. He defined the ancient word that we translate faith or belief in the New Testament. Pistis, I think, is the, the name of the, uh, the word in Greek. He translated that word to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. I think that that is a very important and good definition of faith. To trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. It is far more than mental agreement. That's what most people mean today when they say they believe in something. They mentally agree that it exists or that it's out there. Faith, faith the way that the Bible speaks of it, is far more than that. It's trusting in someone or something. It's relying on someone or something. And it's clinging to someone or something. That's the faith we need to put in Jesus Christ for the security of our life in this life and the next. So, Wes, that's what I would say. Of course, give that uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 definition. That's great. But add to it just a good definition of that ancient Greek word that we normally translate faith or belief to trust in, to rely on, or to cling to. Micah asks a question. If marriage is described so thoroughly as supposed to be between one man and one woman, then why were there so many biblical men who had multiple wives and God still used and blessed them? Because I've heard that people try to use that argument to say that God will still support and bless homosexual marriages, which I disagree with. But what's the best way to answer that? Okay, Micah, I'll give you a good answer to that question. Um, First of all, there is no doubt that in a New Testament context, the Bible puts forth the ideal of one man and one woman. That's just no doubt about it. Uh, Especially in those passages uh, talking about church leadership where it says that they should be the husband of one wife. You know, those commands or ideals are not only for church leaders, but it's just that they are required of church leaders in a dimension that they're not required of everybody else. And, And then there's other passages in the New Testament that point to that as well. So there's really no doubt of it in a New Testament context. Now, it's true that in the Old Testament, there were many people, uh, people that we would regard heroes of the faith, 
David, in some respects, Solomon, Abraham, Isaac, you know, th these being people that had more than one wife, they were polygamous. Okay, here's, here's the situation is that I would question the premise of your question. You say, then why were there so many biblical men who had multiple wives and God still used and blessed them? It's true, God used them and God blessed them in some respect. But here's what you need to look at, Micah. Every time you are given a vision, a look into the family life of a polygamous family in the Bible, it's a mess. Do you want the family life of King David? One of his sons murdered. Okay, let me go back. One of his sons raped one of his daughters. Another one of his sons murdered the son who raped one of his daughters. A, another one of his sons, uh, or a, a, another the son, also uh, led a civil war against, a coup d'etat against David in a civil war. Is that the kind of family life? You, a person wants no, but that's a polygamous family. Look at the rivalry and the fighting and the friction in the family of Jacob or Israel. So much so that cold-bloodedly those brothers sold one of their own brothers into slavery. I, I could go on and on, but any time you see the family life of a polygamous family in the Bible, it's a mess. God is teaching us powerfully through that polygamy is not his plan. Now, Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus was asked questions about divorce, which was a controversial topic in Jesus' day, Jesus first addressed the issue of marriage. And when he talked about marriage being between one man and one woman, he said, have you not read, this is Matthew chapter 19, that from the beginning it was so. In other words, God's plan for marriage to be one man and one woman was from the beginning, and he established that precedent in the Garden of Eden. You could say that God did not begin enforcing that. I put kind of quotes around the word enforcing. God did not start enforcing that until the New Testament. He just allowed it and hoped that people would learn from the recorded disasters of polygamous family life in the Old Testament. So God's blessing was not upon these multiple marriage families in the Old Testament. And if we want God's blessing upon our marriages, we should do it in a way that honors him. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you do it in a way that God honors that uh, married life or family life is always going to be easy. No, no, there's still lots of challenges, lots of trials, lots of difficulties, but it's still our, our duty to honor God and his plan. So, Mike, I, I would just point to that. Uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, from the beginning, it was so the uh, husband of one wife passages in the New Testament and the evident mess that you see in the Old Testament of family life that is outside of God's plan there in um, the Old Testament. Okay, let me go on here. Um, Jennifer asks, good day, pastor. What's the difference between demons and fallen angels? Uh, Jennifer, that's a great question. 
You know, the, the Bible speaks of fallen angels. It speaks of demonic beings or demonic spirits. It also speaks, there's an interesting phrase used in the Gospels, of unclean spirits. Now, many Bible scholars, and I would find myself in agreement with those Bible scholars, believe that fallen angels, demons, and unclean spirits all refer to the same category of beings. That demons are fallen angels. That unclean spirits are these fallen angels, are these demons. But I would say that that is not universally agreed upon among Christians. Some people think that fallen angels have one category. Demonic spirits or unclean spirits are a different category, different order of being. And I would say that uh, th there's not, at least that comes to my mind right now, there's not an absolutely clear, irrefutable link between them in the scriptures. But I think that there's enough overlap to be able to say that fallen angels are demonic spirits, are unclean spirits. Again, I don't think that there's exactly enough information for us to be absolutely certain on it, but there's enough indication of it. But there, there's enough um, lack of clarity regarding this that there is some level of disagreement about this among believers. All right, um, I think I'm going to take one more question. We are about at the top of the hour. Like I always say, if we haven't been able to get to all the questions, I apologize. It's not my intention to skip some questions. But we do take note of all the questions and we save them up for a future pre-recorded version. Let me take one more question. Uh, Ali asks, is it biblical to pray to feel the presence of God? Um, Ali, I would say this. First of all, I don't recall any biblical passage that tells us that we should pray, that we would feel. And when you say feel, I'm going to take that in a very um, demonstrative way. I mean, sort of physically feel in a very like overwhelming sense that we would feel the prayer. There's nowhere in the scriptures, I think, that, that tells us to pray that way. And I do think that there is some danger in seeking after such an experience. The, the danger is this, that we would rely so much on such a sensory experience that we lose sight of the fact that we're just supposed to put our trust, we're supposed to, as the question before was about faith, we're supposed to trust in, rely on, cling to Jesus Christ, whether feelings are there or not. I do know, both from the Bible and from history, that there have been believers who at times have been overwhelmed with a sense of God's presence. I have felt some similar experiences in my life, but I don't think that we should seek after the experiences. Ali, I would put it this, seek the Lord. Don't seek an experience. Seek the Lord. Seek his truth. Seek his power. Seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
seek the Lord and whatever experiences come along the way for that, assuming they're from God, praise the Lord for them. But I I do think that especially in our day and age today, where we want to judge the truth of everything simply on an experiential basis, I think there's danger in seeking after experience. So that would be my counsel for any believer along those lines. Seek God himself. And I think when you do that and do that over time, God will grant you some marvelous experiences. But I think it is a trap. It's a snare to seek the experiences first. Hope that's helpful for you. So glad that you could join us today on our live question and answer program. Uh, God willing, and if we live, we'll be back here in a week next Thursday. And I hope that you can join us then. God bless you. And again, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.